Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Welcome to our so-called podcast on our so-called network doing so-called podcasting, covering so-called hockey. So-called journalist. I am so-called happy to be here. (laughs) So-called proud of us for the work that we've done. Um, So-called reflective over the last couple months. And so-called appreciative for, you know, everyone who looks at our stuff and understands that it's so-called journalism. Oh, I so-called think that it was so-called great that so-called many people so-called came back and so-called found a story that was out of the so-called news cycle. Uh, and it found a so-called completely new audience in the last week. So that's pretty cool. I, I feel like I got some so-called legitimacy from our so-called commissioner because he so-called mentioned us, and therefore uh, so-called people are like, wait, why are you so-called critiquing them? So-called, are you being like Trumpian and critiquing the media? Therefore, so-called, <laughs> is this a good story? <laughs> I like how he so-called he said he so-called didn't read our so-called story, even though he so-called knew how many so-called sources we had in so-called. Oh no, story. no! My favorite so-called moment of this entire so-called thing is that he goes so-called nine anonymous sources so-called don't get my attention. Well, dude, you're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up on ESPN and Ice, uh, our so-called podcast, we've got some great so-called guests. We've got uh, John Cooper, head coach of your Stanley Cup champion. Tampa Bay Lightning, and a little guy by the name of P.K. Subban, you might have heard of him, uh, who's got uh, a, a cool new project with Adidas, and then also t- tells us some fun uh, stuff about his uh, his memories of getting drafted as well. All that and more on this so-called podcast, ESPN and Ice. Let's start the show proper, so-called, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And Greg, I'm going to try not to put so-called into every sentence from here on forward in the podcast. Because I think that could be a little annoying, but Extraordinarily. For those who aren't hip to the bit, uh, Gary Bettman went on uh, a Vancouver radio station last week and talked about our story about uh, the NHL bubble, NHL bubble confidential, in which uh, a bunch of players talked to us anonymously about their experiences. Again, we we both feel the story was extraordinarily fair. Uh, Most of the story is just about their the weirdness of being in there and seeing their opponents by the elevators and stuff and. You know, the entire first section is about how great the testing was and how safe they felt. You know, granted, you can't you can't figure out how these things land. We didn't know that fly fishing would become shorthand for the <laughs> the literal bait and switch of some of the things promised to the players uh, in the bubble that they didn't get. And that seemed to be the takeaway from a lot of people about the story. But I mean, go check it out, man. I would say like, you know, three quarters of the story is very much just life in the bubble and, and not a critique of anything that the NHL did. But, uh, but but Bettman called it out, called us so-called journalists, and in the process gave a story that was completely uh, out of the news cycle, a brand new life. For that, I feel like I owe him an, edibles arra- an ed- edible arrangements <laughs> or some such that I might be sending in the mail to Manhattan. Um, but uh, but that's what the, the opening bit was about in case you, you weren't aware of it. But, but we You mentioned on. edibles, and I just I never told you this. And now is the perfect opportunity to. Um, I don't know if anyone knows this, but in Finland, weed is still really taboo. Um, Mm. You know, they like to drink there. 
Um, you know, there's other things that they do, but weed is just something that culturally is not seen as acceptable. And so I was told by some of our Finnish journalist friends that the tabloids had picked up our player anonymous story and their headline on it was NHL players using weed gummies in the bubble. <laughs> yes. You see, all you people complaining about it, not there not being enough uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll in our story. Go to Finland. Huge news in Finland that people were popping. We weed are gummies. controversial over there. <laughs> Anyways, we move on. Um, obviously, the big news of the week, it's actually ongoing as we uh, as we do the podcast um, is the NHL draft. Day one was in the books yesterday and uh, not not a whole uh, hell of a lot happened uh, to be quite candid as far as uh, the usual fireworks that we see in the draft. I mean, you know, we're coming off a year when we had like PK Subban traded at the draft and all kinds of things, all sorts of rumors, trying to see which GMs talk to each other and that sort of thing. Um, the virtual draft, the first Zoom draft for the NHL, uh, went off without uh, a player traded, really. It was just uh, teams moving up and down the draft board. A little bit more action on day two. Matt Murray traded to Ottawa so far. Um, but uh, but day one was, was very prospect-focused, I would say, would be the, word I would put, the uh, term I would use, Emily. Indeed. I think there's a couple reasons for why we didn't see as much movement. Everyone's talked about this being a really deep draft um, and not necessarily um, tiered. Once you get past the Alexis Lafreniere, who is ready to go and jump in right away, there, there weren't guys that like popped out. So nobody was really trying to maneuver. You know, there's only a couple move ups and move downs in the first round. The second thing is free agency is on Friday. Um, the draft began on Tuesday. And there is going to be movement, and we're seeing it right now as we're recording this podcast. Um, but I, I feel like guys just want to get the draft out of the way um, mm -hmm. and, and, and focus on that and then kind of shift gears uh, to the free agency and trade market. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and again, it's, I think it's tougher for these guys to do things differently. And after you've been conditioned to do the I press a button and call my friend at the other table or I walk <laughs> over and have a, a little discussion with another GM in the corner of the draft floor, like it's kind of a different a different set of skills to start pulling this stuff off in real time. You know, a lot of trades are done over the course of weeks and months and and uh, at the trade at the draft, sometimes it's in a matter of moments. And I feel like maybe. They just didn't they weren't limber enough to kind of get some of this action done. But again, you know, we are talking about, like you said, a number of different market forces too: the flat cap, um, internal budgets that we're not aware of. And uh, the expansion draft coming up is, a, is an external force as well. In that sense, I was a little surprised that we didn't see more trades because, look, if you're the Vegas Golden Knights and you want to get rid of Marc-Andre Fleury, well, one, good luck, because you have a very limited number of places he's willing to go. But you also need to find an intermediary team to probably take a, a chunk of that contract before you uh -huh. trade him someplace. And so logic would dictate the only way you're doing that is to do what Kyle Dubas did with the Patrick Marlowe contract last year at the draft, no less, I believe, which is to send that player and a, like a first-round pick to a team to take a part of the freight, and then you send him to where he's going to go. And yet the Golden Knights made their pick, you know, in round one. So these were the types of trades I thought we would see during the first round, and we didn't. And it's kind of weird that uh, that 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 kind of action didn't take place. Um, before we get to the picks themselves, let's talk a little bit about the aesthetics. There were some really cool things that happened because of this virtual draft. 
Alex Trebek introduced an Ottawa draft pick through the form of a question. I mean, how great is that? That was an amazing moment. At the Jeopardy studio. Yeah, no less. No less the Jeopardy studio. The how they heralded uh, and hallowed uh, Jeopardy studio. And then, of course, um, you know, the moment, the really, you know, cherry on the Sunday, if you will, when Ozzy Wiesblatt was drafted by the San Jose Sharks at number 31 and Don, uh, uh, Doug Wilson, rather, Jr., signed his name to Ozzy's mother, uh, who was hearing impaired um, through the Zoom. And it was just a lovely moment. And then it got even lovelier. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the Sharks had him on a Zoom call, uh, Ozzy Wiesblatt, afterwards. And, like, Eric Carlson zoomed in, Brent Burns zoomed in, Logan Couture zoomed in. So it was that moment where you realize, man, what a bummer that these prospects didn't get the opportunity to sit in the audience and sweat it out and hug their family when they hear their name and go to the stage and get the jersey from the team owner and take their pictures and do all the usual you know well listen everybody's graduation got screwed up this year right it's the same thing with these draft prospects and it was nice to see the sharks make the extra effort to be like let's make this special this guy's going 31 in the first round but let's make this real special for him and I dug it. It was from the sign language thing to the Zoom call. It was like really, you know, first class effort by the Sharks in this draft to make it something other than just perfunctory. It was completely sweet. And the other thing about Ozzy Wiesblatt, Wiesblatt, I, we're going to have to learn this one. Um, ASL was his first language because he was raised by this mom um, who is deaf and his brothers. They all speak it at home. So I think that was a really unique part of it. Um, I wish more teams, though, had done unique things like that and took opportunity to do it. You know, I mm -hmm. think one of the reasons that Gary Bettman was so thin-skinned about our story and criticism of the bubble is that the league put so much effort and energy and time creating this thing and making sure it went off the ground and was a success and they could do the Stanley Cup. And look, they did that by all means. You know, we can say that was a check of a box. But mm. that also means that they have spent pretty much zero time thinking about the entertainment value of the draft. They saw <laughs> the ratings of the Stanley Cup final, and they're like, we're competing with every other sport right now. Maybe <laughs> the cost-benefit analysis isn't quite there for us to put in all this energy. Um, but it really could have come down to the teams um, to show their own creativity. And I love the teams that did, like you mentioned, the Senators. Um, the Sharks had a special moment. Other teams decided that the method they would go would just have prominent players in their market announced the pick, which in theory is really cool, except for the fact that Morgan Riley's standing there like he's in a <laughs> hostage video. Not so cool. Uh, and and I, I, Mitch Marner, who was actually doing the announcing, and it was kind of a funny moment because it seems like they were filming him and he was a little off with timing and they're like, do you guys need a timeout? Like, what's going on here? Um, he also was really stiff until the end when he flashes this huge smile and you're like, Mitch, where was that the whole time? So... <laughs> I wish the teams leaned in a little bit more, but I also understand why they didn't. Like I said, for a lot of NHL teams, this is just a business-as-usual proposition. They weren't letting their marketing teams get involved. They weren't letting their communications team get involved. They're just like, get us through this so we can start yeah. planning next season and figuring yeah. out when all the boys need a report. I liked when the Ducks made their pick, and it was like their assistant GM with the other two guys in the back with their masks on. It looked like, it looked like a totalitarian speech from The Handmaid's Tale. 
it was very it was very awkward. Well, the the ducks also did two things. One, they showed their internal offices, and everyone's mentioning that it looks like Dunder Mifflin. Two, <laughs> they had that video with fans where what was it? The pick is in. The pick is in. The yeah. pick is in. Is the pick in? And like it was cute, and I get it, and I, I give them full marks for trying to get people involved, but it was kind of cloying. Yeah, it was kind of like our bit at the beginning of this podcast. So called. <laughs> um, the uh, and obviously the other one too was um. The Winnipeg Jets uh, having uh, mm. Dale Howarchuk's uh, widow, Qu- uh, Crystal, um, announce their pick. Really nice touch, too, um, as well. I like I like that, too. Um, as far as the picks themselves go, some some decent intrigue in in the first round through the first 12 picks. Basically, as our, our prospects guru, Chris Peters, has pointed out, it's about 12 or 13 prospects that go 13. Like Seth Jarvis might've been the last one. And then there's like a drop off after that. And so it was just a matter of where those 13 would fall. I mean, Lafreniere first, obviously everyone knew the Rangers made this kid wait <laughs> like a stupid amount of time before they made With his the pick. unit of a dad. You see and why this kid's so big. Uh, the Kings go with Byfield over, uh, now, how did we find out how to say Tim St- – is it Stutzle? Is it? I think it's Stutzle, right? On NBC Network, they were saying Stutzle. Stutzle? Yeah, because I was – We always I was thought saying, it was like the pastry. Yeah, I thought it was like Stutzle. And I was like – I said to Chris last night, I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I, I thought the kid's name was like the pa- like a pastry. But I feel going second's great. He's going to do so well in that market. Um, it's just an ingenious pick. And then having Kopitar there as a, um, as a mentor is, uh, is going to be great for him. Uh, Stutzle is a bit closer to being NHL ready, so that's going to help Ottawa in the short term. Lucas Raymond at four, I love that for Detroit. I thought he was the best available forward at that point, and I like him better than both Sanderson and Drysdale. So good job by Eiserman making what a lot of people thought could be the pick there, but a lot of the mock drafts had uh, Cole Perfetti going there instead. So I do like that pick. Now, I'm going to skip ahead for a second to seven. As you know, I'm a Devils fan. I was kind of hoping that Askarov, the goalie, might go to the Devils at seven. He didn't. That's fine. You know, goalies. Now I'm back on the goalies are a specious investment in the first round because we didn't yeah, make one. So screw it. You know, goalies are, are, are poison in the first round. We all know that. Alexander Holtz, uh, goal scoring winger. Pretty good pick. Devils had three picks in the first round. Two of them were really good. And the other one was. Sh- Shakir Mukahamadoulin, who uh, was the surprise pick at 20. Not someone anybody predicted would go in the first round. Working theory behind the scenes, Emily, between our two favorite teams, is that the Rangers traded up, drafted Braden Schneider at 19. The Devils had Schneider at the top of their board. They simply went to their next defensive defenseman on their board and drafted the Russian kid. Now, not to say the Russian kid's not going to be good, just to say that there's a theory behind the scenes that maybe the Rangers kind of like shook them a little bit with their aggressive move to move to the pick in between uh, their 18th and 20th picks. The one trend that I found fascinating in the first round um, was the amount of Russians that were drafted. Yeah. Um, it feels like a little bit of a renaissance. And a lot of, most of the guys, in fact, I think all of the Russians in the first round are playing in the KHL this season. And something that 
I don't think should be understated is the fact that the KHL season is going on. And yes, it has only been going on for a short period of time, but there's been some sample size where we can watch these guys play in a pro environment this season, which is pretty rare in a draft year, um, you know, just days before they're about to get drafted. And, you know, with scouting budgets not being able to go see these guys in person, it did shift things a little bit. But I do wonder if that influence some teams because most of these Russian guys who were drafted in the first round were risers. They weren't guys that were expected to go there, but either production early on in this KHL season or some um, performance last season catapulted mm. them to that position. So that's a trend that I was really intrigued by. And I'd love to, you know, later on talk to some people about it and, and why it happened. Yeah. Igor Chinnikov going to the Jackets at 21. Last one we'll talk about in the first round, Hendricks Lapierre. Really interesting story. Um, Four concussions in like a span of months in 2019. Uh, his injury history scared off a lot of teams. This has happened before with players, and they've turned out to be pretty good when they've dropped in the first round. Uh, this was a projected top 10 pick at some point within the last year or so, and the Capitals get him at 22. So, listen, I, I still think the Caps are sitting pretty fat and happy after winning the Cup a couple years ago. <laughs> I think they can afford to take a gamble on a first-round pick. Uh, and if that's the case, that's the case. And of course, should mention our our, our friend John Buchigras making the prediction that Alex Ovechkin will break Gordy Howe's record on an assist by Hendrix Lapierre on ESPN is uh, Bucci's prediction last night on Twitter. I'll tell you why I buy it. I am scared of the Capitals' salary cap situation. We're going to talk in a minute about a goalie they're potentially signing, which I can't imagine is going to be cheap. You're going to need these ELCs in the in the uh, lineup. And I know that this kid isn't expected to come this year, but maybe you got to come a little sooner to help yeah. uh, Daddy Ovi out. Daddy Ovi. All right. We're going to get to free agents and stuff in a bit, but first got to talk to John Cooper about, you know, the Lightning winning the Stanley Cup and stuff. Joining us now, head coach of the Stanley Cup champion, Tampa Bay Lightning. I like the sound of that as somebody who picked him. Uh, John Cooper joins us here on ESPN and Ice. John, it's... Good to hear you again. Congratulations on escaping the bubble. We see that you're you're doing well. Um, I, I my question to you. I remember talking to you many many months ago at like a practice, and it was at a time when you were trying to get your team to play a different way, um, the kind of hockey that you felt they needed to play to win in the playoffs. And I was wondering at what point did you did it occur to you, or or did you see what they were doing and say, all right, these guys finally got it. Ooh. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate it. You, the great pod you guys run there. And, uh, and I hate to readily admit it, but I do listen to it uh, from time to time. So it's a really good job. Second, uh, to answer your question, this is uh, that's a tough one because I think, I don't know if you can answer it and say, Hey, it was this specific date. I think after we lost to Columbus, there was most definitely uh, an attitude adjustment. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean we needed to kind of change our mindset. And I think that's so important in anything you do is having the proper mindset. So that was kind of, and it, it was among other things. It wasn't about changing our structure or game plan. Like that was not the thing we had to do, but it was our mindset. And it was our being a little bit more responsible with our game. A, taking penalties. And B, the biggest thing was turnovers. And our puck management was not anywhere where it needed to be. You know, we were that team that, you know what, we could be, we were up 
we'd be up three nothing. We'd want to win nine nothing instead of just winning the game three nothing. And so uh, at times we had a little bit of an offensive arrogance to us, uh, and it just we needed to figure out that hey, um, this isn't the way it's going to get done. Yeah, it can get us 62 wins, but it's sure not going to get us any wins in the playoffs. And so gradually, as the season wore on, and there were definitely some bumps in the road along the way, but I think you know we brought in some character guys, the Pat Maroons, the Kevin Shattenkirks, the Luke Shens, uh, that were hungry. Uh, it was, they, they kind of brought a fresh outlook to us. And then as the season wore on, we picked up the other guys, the Bogosians, the Goudreaux, the Colemans. And, uh, and then, like I said, the, the pause, I think the pause had a, was a big help for us just in our, our mental mindset because of the way the trades went on and it kind of disrupted our team. And we needed to find ourselves again. But it, I know that's a super long answer, but it was a really long process. I can't sit here and pinpoint. I just watched it progress as the season went on. And by the time we hit, came out of the pause, uh, I knew we were ready to go. And John, it all culminates to the Stanley Cup, which is what everybody dreams of, but it was unusual winning in a bubble. And from my understanding and talking to some of the guys, you win and you get to celebrate and be on the ice and then you go to the locker room and the NHL asks you, please don't burst the bubble. They've got nowhere to go. <laughs> the guys don't want to go back to the hotel because they're sick of the hotel. The Dallas Stars are at the hotel. You don't want to party in front of the Stars. So you stay there till like 1 a.m. That's what I understand. What was that whole experience like? What were those hours like? Okay, so the, it was interesting because never won the Stanley Cup, but won at other levels, but not at this one. And and from what I'd heard, and, and we didn't, you know, you don't anticipate this. You're not thinking about what's going to happen afterwards. But it was, it was so special what happened. Because if, if we'd been there and all our families and all our friends and everything had been there, like I would have been, you know, you're sitting there would have been worrying about where your parents are, and where's mm-hmm. your wife, and where are your kids, and where are your friends, and what's going on. And I, I'd heard in 04 when Tampa and we had a few guys you know, on our staff that were there, that to go from one end of the locker room to the other would take you 15 minutes <laughs> just because there were so many people in there. So it wasn't the same experience. But for us, it was just us. And obviously there's some fun going on in the room, and you know, the, the coach's room kind of turned into the cigar room. <laughs> and so guys would come in. Hot box, the coach's the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so... And, and, like, you watched, uh, you know, like, Nikita Kucherov, it was, it was awesome to see. Like, he never took his – I don't think he took his equipment off for two hours. Like, he wouldn't get out of it. That's not great. Could, yeah, I know. But you got to spend time with the ones you went to war with, and there was no distraction. So I, I, I say, like, the biggest tear-jerking moment for me was FaceTiming my wife and kids after the game on the ice. Like, that was kind of a little meltdown moment for me. But then after that, it was a celebration with just the 52 people in the bubble. And it, it was so much more intimate. And that, that's something I'll, uh, I'll never forget. Yeah, it's funny you should say the. I mean, I, I try not to traffic in the, you know, war <clears throat> aesthetics for sports. But it's kind of unmistakable that when you guys got back on the plane and got back to the tarmac and were at that little airport, seeing the players reunited with their families had a real sort of coming home vibe didn't it like it's kind of unmistakable yeah it was 
so somebody said to me, like, it's not really that sunny. Why are you wearing uh, sunglasses? And I'm like, because I'm bawling. That's why, <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it was, uh, it was really emotional. It wasn't, you know, like, I remember coming off the plane in 2015 when we won the uh, Prince of Wales mm-hmm. and you're coming off and you're waving and you're raising your hands and it was, it was fun. And the fans are all going nuts here. It was off the plane. Where's your family? You know, it was like, and you could see who's, you know, the kids would run to, you know, whether it was Bogosian or it was just whoever. And, 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 you know, when I got off and my kids were running to me and it, it was, uh, God, it was emotional. Like I get emotional thinking about it now. It was one of those, another one of those moments that I remember exactly how I felt. And, and so, you know, the celebration went on afterward, but that was a, uh, gosh, we were, you know, even for myself, like I'd left my family July 3rd. So it was, uh, it was 90 days since I'd last seen uh, my wife and kids. So it was, uh, it was a really emotional moment, not only for myself, but all the players as well. Yeah. Emotions ran high. It it was a hell of a celebration. You guys were on boats, the whole thing. You're, you're a savvy guy. I'm sure you saw some of the criticism that came to the team about, you know, doing this sort of thing in a pandemic, especially after having been in a hermetically sealed bubble, getting tested every day for two plus months. What, what I mean, did you? What was your reaction to that? And I mean, is it, is it in your mind like, hey, this is the once in a lifetime thing? It's understandable. You mean about the celebration? People... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the, that's the the tough thing. I, I mean, from our perspective, uh, <laughs> you know, I think one of the guys joked like. Well, we're one of the 28 healthiest people right now, and uh, you know, <laughs> jumping off that plane. I don't know if we are, but but honestly, I think with our parade, this is a crazy thing. So we back into the parade, the riverboat parade, because mm-hmm. of you know the medical concern, the COVID concerns. Well, that turned out to be as magnificent a parade that I've ever been. Well, I've been a ton of part of them, but I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. and I don't know, like I you know, hopefully the the Bucks and the Rays can finish off this year with some championships themselves, but that's the next that, that has to be done. Like not too many cities have that set up. And it was so cool to have all the fans lined up on, on either side. And so for us down here, you know, they, I think, you know, Florida has been one of the probably looser States in the, in the country regarding what's gone on. But um, it was from, from our perspective and from what we were told, the people of this city and state and everybody's been so like in their houses quarantining for mm-hmm. months and months and months. And then there was so many other social issues going on that were so important to our country. And there was just so many mixed emotions. I think there was a lot of negativity going on. And the mere fact that we were able to do this for our city and, mm-hmm. and, and the state. And, and I think there was just a whole ton of emotions, happy ones that were coming out and people were celebrating. Um, you know, I was, I, it, you, for a moment, you, it's out of your mind, but you're, you know, you, then you get the mixed emotions of like, wow, yeah, there is a pandemic going on. But like I said, it was, it was pretty exciting time, but I think it was a really important time for a lot of people in our town just to have something happy to grip onto. And so that's what happened to look at it. Mm-hmm. John, one of the words I never want to hear after the year 2020 is Zoom. I have so much Zoom fatigue. <laughs> and you have had to do, you know, I don't even Thank want to know much. how Thank many. Thank you very much. Yeah. 
for, for not Zooming me. Yeah, no, I, I, people have asked to Zoom lately, and I'm like, no, a call is fine. Um, but you've had to do it for all these press conferences, and still, you know, you're one of the more personable, engaging, and, and you know, insightful coaches in the league, and it still became appointment viewing for us reporters to be a part of your Zooms. I'm just curious from your perspective, like, What's it like for you to have to have these interactions with reporters? And do you feel like you get the same, you know, out of it? Uh, well, so it's different. So you, uh, thank you for that. Um, I, I'm somebody when I do my press conferences, I'll be able to, I, I kind of feel like trying to read the room. You can see the attitude of a reporter when they ask the question. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's a lot more intimacy to it. Uh, it's it's you know, you're in this setting and you're kind of, it's a lot, obviously a lot more on the spot. Um, but there's interaction. And I think the dialogue is, is better when you're face to face with somebody, there's follow up questions, you can read their reactions. And, and I, I think it just, it makes for a better, better press, press conference. Now we get to the zooms and it's okay. Look at that camera. And then oftentimes there was a picture of yourself on a huge TV. So, it was really hard not to look at yourself because you were you want to talk to somebody. It's much it's it's a lot more difficult to talk to just a little you know uh, lens. So, and then it just turned out to be was either Sammy or Woj were, you know, the guys that were were you know holding court with the computer and in the quay and you go in to the Zoom call and you see all the people that were on it and then okay who's ra- who's raising their hands but it was it was hard to get intimate with with the with the people asking the questions but then it turned into you know like i think i did 75 zoom in the uh in the bubble and it was uh, disgusting and then it became it became like a running joke and they're like well what are we going to do today and and it was you know like the things the stuff that was said before we'd go on and after and you know like it just wasn't that same vibe we Mm -hmm. tried to make it fun and worthwhile but um, you know, it was just, I don't know. It was, it was, it was different. Again, unique experience. I'm glad I did it once, but I hope it's only once. And you only had 73 of them, um, ask you about Stamkos' status. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good percentage. Yeah. Right? Well, I think, <laughs> excuse me, you know, like when the, when the league tells you unfit to play, yeah, it, it works good and bad, you know, in the end, right. we're not supposed to say anything else. And two, you know, I tried to like, I wasn't trying to be coy or anything like that, but, you know, I know he's not playing the first round. I knew he wasn't playing the second round. I pretty much knew for sure he wasn't playing the third round. So it's one of those like, hey, I'll tell you when he's playing. He's not playing. Don't ask me any more questions because it was just, it was, it was kind of to save the same answers that were going to have to come out. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think in the fourth round, I got a little more loosened up. And then basically I was like, yes, he's playing. No, he's not for the rest of the series. And, but that you know, you feel bad about doing stuff like that because, but in the end, you know, there's also gamesmanship going on. Um, when he was potentially, you know, if we're going to be able to make another team have to think about him, even whether he's playing or not, you know, that's a distraction we want. And if we can, you know, unfortunately, if you can make the team have to say, okay, well, we got a plan for Stamkos coming back. Here's if he is. Here's if he doesn't. Maybe we've taken away from something else they could have done. So. There is a little bit of gamesmanship in that. So we're not trying to, yeah. you know, fool the media or anything like that. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's tough when such a popular star player is out and people want to see him uh, play. They should be worried. He had a hundred percent shooting percentage. But listen, 
The thing is, <laughs> the thing I wanted to ask you about, last thing for me, you've known Julian Breezebaugh for a really, really, really long time. What is it about him that enabled him, or maybe about the situation, that enabled him to have the patience to see this thing through while other teams probably would have, you know, blown up the core, and then also understand intrinsically what you needed to add to the roster to, to get over the hump? Yeah, the one thing, uh, Julie and I have had a, had a great relationship. So when I got hired by the organization in 2010, uh, Julian and Steve Eisman were the two people interviewing me. But Julian did most of the interviewing. Steve would jump in with questions here and there. But, you know, I was being hired for the American League, not the NHL. So, you know, Steve didn't ask as many questions. Uh, but in our relationship, I'd never met him before that. But mm. we kind of clicked. We're different. Like we always say is that, you know, the yin the yin to my yang type deal. And, um, it was, it was, it's a great relationship because as we grew in the American league and it's, it's funny called development league with players. It also is with coaches and management. He got a vibe for what I needed and I knew he'd go out there and get it. And so when we were together in the NHL and in the first year, he's GM and he's, he's, thrown in the jam position in September. It's a really tough situation to do anything with this team other than just kind of watch and see where we're at. And, excuse me, so that happens. And, you know, one of the big things about getting swept, I remember, you know, one of the toughest moments for me was seeing Steve afterwards and saying, hey, I, I, like I was so, I felt sick in my stomach that we couldn't win a cup with him while he was uh, still with the organization. But it gave Julian a year to watch and see where we were at. And, Yes, he could easily have blown everything up. But as we talked about, there was a lot of trust in our relationship. We've been together for 10 years. Um, it wasn't, like I said in, earlier in this uh, questions, was wasn't changing our structure, wasn't changing our plan. We had to change our attitude and we had to change our personality. We felt we could do it. Uh, and it took the year, but eventually it was, okay, Julian, it, it reminded me of 2012 when we won at the Calder Cup and some of the big trades that were tough to make had to be made. And he went out and did it. And he just, he's, what he is, he's not afraid. And he's not afraid to put his you-know-what's on the line um, to do something. And, and there was a lot of belief and trust in each other to do it. And he went out and gave up some things that, that people criticize. It's way too much. And, but we're in these positions. That's what we do. And, and when you're a head coach or you're a general manager of a professional, professional franchise, you're going to be second-guessed. And, you know, thankfully for us, uh, everything worked out, but you got to give him a ton of credit because uh, he went on a limb as a young, you know, GM and and uh, did what he felt was right, and it worked out. All right, John, last one for me. I just want to circle back to Stamkos for a second because take away the pandemic and take away the bubble. Like this is an insane sports story that the captain misses the entire playoffs, comes, plays less than three minutes, scores a goal that we never see him again. Um, you said you didn't think he was going to play, you know, this entire playoffs at some point and, and you get the sense that he can play in the final going into that game I'm not sure what information you had from trainers or Steven himself but how nervous were you watching him or what was it like watching him knowing that like one little tweak could aggravate the injury and he would be on the bench again so I honestly didn't think that way and one of the big things for me was when the player plays he has to be able to play like you can't this isn't a come in maybe sit on the bench and, and play the power play, that's it. Or, or, or you're going to play four or five minutes and don't, you have to be able to play. And so 
we talked about that, and there was a we had it in game two. It was maybe a potential, but we didn't feel his conditioning. We need a few like if we get a couple more days in his conditioning and run him through a few more bumps. But his his progress had hit a snag. Probably it was early rounds, and so that's when it was like, okay, this is going to happen. And so he took a lot of time away off the ice, and then slowly tried to rebuild himself, and it, and his progress was was excellent. So. When he was going to play that game, we made that decision. Uh, everybody was involved in it, and it was like, oh, I can play. Like, I'll, I'll be able to, I think I'm, I'm in great shape. So we did it. We started him with uh, Paquette Maroon, and he was, I think he wa- <laughs> he definitely wanted to start there because, you know, it's hard to come into an NHL game, period, let alone a Stanley Cup final. And then we were going to put him on the second unit in the power play and then just slowly ease him in and eventually – you know, we'd give him more minutes. And so those first couple shifts go on. And then, like you said, we would have never expected he was going to tweak something again. Um, and it was unfortunate that it happened. But in the storybook fashion of things, it's so cool the way it ended up. Uh, and and he's, he's going to be able to recover from this and get whatever he has to do to get repaired. But, uh, yeah, just, you know, long story short here, we weren't putting him in to play, you know, four or five minutes. He was going to play the game, and unfortunately he just got hurt. Wow. Well, Coop, it's been quite a journey. Um, you know, as you said, the best thing about the bubble is leaving it. But, uh, yeah. you know, it, you guys did it. You did the thing. You were the last team standing, and that's uh, it's a hell of an accomplishment. As many people have said, this is a Stanley Cup like we've never seen before. And uh, to win it under these circumstances after what happened last year is, is, is quite the thing. So uh, we thank you for your time. Congratulations again. And uh, take, some, take some time, man. Go, go put on the rock the rock and roll t-shirts and uh, and kick back for like a week or two, will you? And delete Zoom yeah. from your phone. Yeah, no more Zoom at all. <laughs> no more Zoom. No, it was uh, it, it was a it was a remarkable experience. Something with obviously it's got it ended up and it was, I've got fond memories of. I don't really want to do it again, uh, but everybody that was in that bubble, the fifty two plus of the twenty four teams that were there, understands how hard it was and and. Uh, it was, there was, there's going to be, someday somebody's going to write the Inside the Bubble book. I don't know who that's going to be, but it'll be a good one. And, and like I said, I think it was great for the game. I'm glad we got to finish the season. I'm glad we finished where we were. So I appreciate you having me on. Our thanks to John Cooper of the Lightning. Congratulations to him and all of the Tampa Bay Lightning for their victory. And I uh, hope everybody's healthy after that parade. Free agency. Starts on Friday, the frenzy. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Every everything we've heard is that um, there is going to be a huge run on the big names, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we're going to maybe have a lull for a little bit on the smaller names. I think we're seeing a couple of different things happen here, which is you're going to see teams clearing out space for free agents. I mean, Nashville doing some business as we're doing the podcast right now and buying out Kyle Turris and making the Nick Bonino trade. Can we pause on that for a second? Sure. Finally. (laughs) This this is a team that got him, expected him to be something, expected him to be their number two center for years to come. He didn't work with one coach. He started out with John Hines, and it just didn't feel like it was going to work great either. 
why keep going for the next three years of his contract? Just cut mm -hmm. ties now with how much money he's making and with his team that doesn't want to go full rebuild, but it's got a lot of old guys that they kind of got to capitalize on the window. They've been so stale since they made to that East, the Stanley Cup final. Like, I, I'm just glad that David Poyle did it. And also, I'm glad they got the goalie. Yeah, and Adam Vingan, our friend from the ten uh, well, the Tennessee and now with the Athletic, uh, says that they've saved eight point one million dollars in cap space by trading Benino and buying out Turris. You know, this is gonna we're gonna start with Peter Angelo in the free agency watch, but we might as well start with Taylor Hall. Taylor Hall, his favorite coach he ever played for was John Hines, and mm -hmm. I've in the back of my mind, I think I've even said it on the show, thought that Nashville could be a stealthy candidate for Hall because of that relationship, and you know, they not exactly scoring. They need scoring. Yeah, it's not exactly like a team that isn't poised to do some good things. Nashville, a pretty cool place to live. I don't know if he's got sort of some familial uh, or familial uh, friend friend type situations on that team. I don't know if he's like boys with any of those guys, but like it, it makes kind of sense on a short term basis for Hall to explore a team like that if he wants to win. I mean, there's still a lot of money committed to their top end guys and then adding even more money to that group, but you know they've got some smart contracts there, and they've they've had room for a while to do something like that. So that's going to be an interesting spot. They, there's clearly something in the works in Nashville, and we'll have to see where it goes. But as far as that, as far as Hall goes, the only other thing that we've talked, we've heard, is what everybody hears, which has just been what's been cycling through the echo chamber, which is you know Alberta teams. That's all you hear. Like anybody who's on the, where's Hall going? Alberta teams. He's from there. Uh, so maybe we have got another option kind of materializing before our very eyes. The one thing we've seen early is a run on this mid-tier of defensemen. Um, I think Mark Bergevin began it by giving Joel Edmondson the uh, extension. Then we see Dylan DeMello and Brendan Dillon both resign with the teams that they were traded to at the trade deadline. Both at, in my opinion, great deals for the player, great deals for the team. Um, you know, we talked about the middle class of players, these guys in the 3 to $4 million range being wiped out. And these are these three to four million dollar players, but they're good fit. So I'm glad they got it done. But it leads us to the big fish of free agency, which isn't Taylor Hall, in my opinion. It's Alex Petrangelo. And, you know, you've been banging the drum. I'm with you banging this drum. He wants to stay in St. Louis. It's very clear. I think it's the unfortunate thing is it's also clear to Blues management. So that's kind of uh, lessened his negotiating power mm -hmm. by all signals and indications he's going to go to the open market on Friday because they haven't reached a deal. What's hilarious and fascinating to me is the teams that you hear mentioned for him is Vegas. Mm -hmm. The team that you hear mentioned for anybody is Vegas. How much <laughs> cap space does Vegas have, Greg? Are they running a $200 million salary cap? I'll tell you what they have. They've got no cap space at all. They signed Robin Lehner. You go to cap friendly, you look at current cap space, and it's a goose egg. It is nothing. They have no space. They have to move out people to make that deal. But I think Vegas. I get it. Everyone mentioned. wants to go there. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the thing. They got a lot of money. They're willing to spend it. Everybody likes to live in Vegas. All the players have raved about their lives there. They're a really mm -hmm. good team. I mean, you know, conference finals this year. Let's not forget about that. And of course, the tax situation, which everybody really likes too. But like, they've got to make and golf. golf. They've got to make several this moves to, to fit Pietrangelo in there. But I will say this, you know, since this franchise started, they have been desirous to get that franchise-level defenseman. Now, you could say they already have one in Shea Theodore. I think that's a fair argument to make. But they've gone for Eric Carlson. They've, they've looked for that type of player. And, and Peter Angelo obviously fits the bill. The one team that's really interesting that's emerged 
And I knew that they were going to be in for him, but I didn't think that they would necessarily be a team that would be, you know, in for him is Florida. Mm -hmm. Because Florida is not close to winning a championship, at least in my estimation. But they and they're also be... one of the teams that we hear is trying to shed some payroll. Correct. But they will have space for him. I mean, that's that's clear. And, and it's not, again, good tax situation, not a bad place to live. Maybe he's got some buds in the team, who's to say, play for Quenville. Um, you know, kind of a scary proposition to spend that much money on a goalie and a defenseman if it comes out to be what, you know, we think the contract could be for Pietrangelo. But it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. I'm sure um, we'll have to keep an eye on what happens with Oliver ekman Larson, where it seems like it's Vancouver or bust. We'll have to keep an eye on what happens with Tori Krug, where there's always been talks about Detroit, but who the heck even knows. A lot of swirl around the defensemen. But even more swirl, Emily, around the goalies. This is fascinating stuff. Jacob Markstrom might set the whole thing in motion, depending on what he wants to do. And I think what the Canucks want to do is sign him. But what Markstrom wants to do is get a no-move clause to ensure he's not going to end up in Seattle. Which I find hilarious for so many reasons. Like, out of anyone who doesn't want to go to Seattle... You're literally going to the closest geographical and cultural market, Vancouver to Seattle. Plus, Seattle <laughs> is putting out all the bells and whistles for these guys. They want to compete with Vegas as having a really good inaugural season. Like, I don't think it'd be the worst thing in the world to go be the face of that franchise their first season. Yeah. But I, he's fighting like hell to get the straight protection like from the expansion draft. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see how that works out. Um, but you know, then then you like you mentioned before, the Lundqvist to Washington thing seems like it's a it's a done deal. Makes uh, too much sense. Flush with buyout money, backing up and, and being the one A to to Samson off there, makes t- too much sense. I, I, people don't recognize, I think, the awkwardness of Henrik Lundqvist playing for the Capitals. Um, you know, the Penguins have always sort of been the Joker to their Batman. But the Rangers have been sort of like the Riddler to their Batman. Like the Rangers and the Capitals have had some very contentious playoff series in the last decade, including some games seven in which Henrik Lundqvist is either won or lost. So it's kind of a another not 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 the weirdness of having Brooks Orpik on your team after laying out all your guys for like five years, but still pretty awkward. Um, Dubnik goes to the Sharks. This is a trade that was maligned a lot by a lot of people, but I think this is a deal where he had a lot of personal issues off the ice this year with his, some familial issues and health situations. And I feel like his head straight, he's still a real good real good goalie, and he's going to be in good hands with the goalie coaches and instructors that they have in San Jose. I'm not, I don't hate it. You can't get worse it. than Aaron Dell. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you can't. You can. You, you mean Martin Jones, but, but the thing is, is that Yikes. if you've got Dubnik there, that maybe you take some of this thing out of that. I don't know. The Sharks are interesting because they clearly believe that better goaltending, healthier year, they can still make a push for a championship. I don't necessarily know if I agree with that math. I think the supporting cast is a big question mark, but there's no doubt that they can be better than they were last year with better goaltending. And then you think about it from the Wilds' perspective where, okay, it was clearly time to move on from Devin Dovnik. Like, mm-hmm. they had stalled a net the last couple of years. They were just getting mediocre production. Uh, you now get to promote Kapo Kakanen, who is the AHL goaltender of the year. Maybe you get and dabble into the market. But really what Bill Guerin is doing is he's putting a stamp on this roster. Like, 
he has been very clear when he came in, like, I see what I've got, and it's fine, but it's not great. And this is not a playoff roster. We not only don't have a number one center in our roster, in our organizational pipeline, but in our franchise's history. So he ships yeah. out Eric Stahl. He gets Bugstad. He's making all these small moves. Now he gets rid of Luke Kunin, which was pretty interesting to bring in Nick Menino. Again, they need to shore up that center depth, but... I'm really curious to see what he looks like. Why are you rolling your eyes? I'm rolling uh, my eyes because I'm so t- I'm so tired of this this Pittsburgh Minnesota like re- commingling. This, you know, Ch- yeah. Chuck Fletcher was They're there running their and, own trade bubble. With yeah, each other. and and like the, and Matt Collins, you know, taking flights back and forth through Pittsburgh and Minnesota. Now Benino's there after Garrett was there in <laughs> Pittsburgh and Benino. I didn't even for make God, for God's yet. sake, just stop! Like, or how about this? Just merge the franchises just do that merge pittsburgh and minnesota i don't know what necessarily minnesota brings to that merger i mean pittsburgh got all the, all the players but you know just do it you you clearly want to merge the franchises with the amount of cross-pollination between these two teams anyways last last thing on the on the the uh, friday stuff oliver ekman larson mentioned before um that's only wants to go situation. play for boston or vancouver like uh, n- I think that the the best result for for the Coyotes is to wait to have him marinate in a rebuild for a year, and then be like, "Hey, bud, remember that trade we tried to do? How about you add a few more teams to the hopper so we can get some value?" Like that's the best move yes, for them and- at this point. I agree, and you know, I, I think that you could criticize Oliver Ekman Larson saying, "Why are you being so restrictive?" He's their captain. He signed this contract. He earned that no trade protection like that's something that he negotiated for and this is the reason that you negotiate it for when you don't want to move your stuff as you like to say when you like the situation you're in <laughs> and you understand yeah. hey maybe this the team around me is going in a different direction but i want to be part of it right right all right all good stuff uh and also good talking to our friend pk suban a uh, return guest on espn and ice uh and uh, here's our conversation with the man himself now joining us is a repeat guest on ESPN on Ice. You know him as the all-star defenseman for the New Jersey Devils. It's P.K. Subban. And P.K., we understand you've got a new film coming out. Um, it's part of Idita's Ready for Change series. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm very, very happy um, and proud of my partnership with Adidas. Uh, they've been fantastic. And I'm really excited uh, moving forward with them. The, the Ready for Change film film series uh features athletes kind of just reflecting on the return to sport with a purpose so you know it's about standing for change and i think that obviously with everything going on um socially um in north america uh, being able to have a partnership with adidas and do this is is huge and you know i think that the one thing that aligns us both is that we feel that um you have the power to change lives through sport um, and connect with people. And, um, you know, that's really, really important. Um, obviously for me to, to be able to do something like this and anybody that's watched kind of what I posted on my social, there's a part in that, that I, I don't think I've really shared with everybody. And that's kind of how I feel my purpose has been in the national hockey league and coming up to this point. And it's about having an influence on other kids that, look like me coming up through the sport and and giving them that hope and understanding where I come from and how I got to where I am today. So uh, I believe that Ready for Change is going to give me that opportunity to 
to use Adidas platform and, and to just further my reach. What I liked about it was it gives you the sum total of who you are, right? Like you obviously as a player, as a personality, your philanthropy, which we're all familiar with through the years. I think, I think that's an important note to hit, right? Like it's not simply just you're an athlete. It's like using your opportunities as an athlete to do so much more, right? No, 100%. And I think that um, everybody's got to be a part of the solution. But I think that we also need to understand that there's going to be leaders and people that are going to be a little bit more visible and um, not saying that I have to be one of those people, but um, I'm definitely willing to, to be one of those people if I have to, to, to be that person to bring uh, more change and to bring more awareness to it. But that all comes with bringing people together. And I think that's been uh, a very important part of this whole thing for me is trying to bring people together. And I think, with Adidas, this Ready for Change series and um, the NHL, we can accomplish that. Um, in, in the video, there's you know references to Black Lives Matter, the, the, the uh, massive uh, outpouring of protests that we saw this year. What were your thoughts on those moments from looking from afar uh, into the playoff bubble? What were your thoughts on those moments when Black Lives Matter was getting a spotlight, uh, and especially that moment when the players stepped up to actually use their voices and, and have those games postponed at the same time that the NBA players were doing that. I actually watched a lot of the games very closely, which is something I don't traditionally do in the off season. Hmm. Um, I try to disconnect, but obviously with the off season being seven months and counting, uh, <laughs> I've had a lot of uh, extra time. Everybody's got to do it the way that they feel comfortable and for some people, that's getting out in front of it. For some people, that's doing it behind the scenes. For some people, that's talking about it. For some people, that's starting a program. So everybody's going to be different in terms of how they contribute. But I think that everybody has to contribute and educate themselves in this. And um, I think that everything that happened in the playoffs is a start. But, you know, we, we, need, we need more. And we have to make sure that we have actionable items that are also going to impact and help where where the a lot of the real issues are and that lies in youth hockey um but more importantly in our communities right uh in terms of education and economics like those are two huge issues in communities especially with underprivileged youth and low budget income communities so uh you know that those are just two things but um i think that with the help of the pic and and you know i'm looking forward to hearing more about what the plans can be. Um, I know specifically for me that uh, the Blue Line Buddies program that I started, I've had a lot of discussions with players around the league and we've gotten a lot of interest from players wanting to be a part of that program specifically. So I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunities um, and a lot of different programs. That's what I'm hoping for. Uh, but we definitely have to put some of that stuff into action. And I think that um, the statements that were made bring awareness to it, but we need, we need actions. And that's, that's the next step for, for the NHL and, and for us as players, I believe. PK, I'm so glad you brought up Blue Blood Buddies because I wanted to ask you about it. You know, so much of the yeah. conversation about racial injustice in the U.S. has centered around police brutality. And so you have this program which has allowed police and underprivileged kids to interact and form relationships and better understand each other. And you formed it in Nashville and you brought it to New Jersey. I'm just curious how everything that's happened in this country over the summer, the last couple of months, has made you evaluate your program. And, and I'm curious, you know, what the status of it is and how you hope for it to evolve. 
you know, first I'd like to backtrack a little bit to four years ago when I started in Nashville and I became a resident of the United States for the first time in my life and first time in my career in moving to Nashville uh, in the South. And when I got to training camp, um, obviously this was around the time when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling and a lot of things were happening. And I'm going to a team that's, you know, a competitive team that's looking to win a championship. And that's hard enough as it is already, um, let alone trying to attack social issues in the community, getting to understand a community that you never played in, living in the United States for the first time. So there was a lot of balls up in the air in terms of juggling. And obviously I have a history of being involved in the community and philanthropic work. So there were some expectations, I'm sure, from people in terms of what I was going to do in Nashville. I had just gotten there and, you know, there was so much kind of social unrest. And, you know, the one thing I wanted to do was bring people together and bridge the gap. So I started a program called Blue Line Buddies. And the reason why I called it Blue Line Buddies actually has absolutely nothing to do with police officers. The blue line in, in, in hockey unifies us all. For the starting five of every game, there's five players from each team. And sometimes the goaltender stands on the line, depending on the game. Um but we all stand on the, on the blue line for the national anthem. And the one thing that I wanted to do was make players feel comfortable because, you know, once Colin Kaepernick started kneeling, it, it brought a lot of opportunity for athletes that had a political view, uh, a personal view on things that were happening in our communities across North America. And people wanted to feel comfortable and that it was their right to, to show that. And what I wanted to do was create a program that was for everyone, that wasn't for just, you know, one group of people um, or for one particular person. So in creating Blue Line Buddies, I know that everybody stands on the red line, the top five and starting five for every team stand on the blue line, excuse me, for the start of the game and for the national anthem. And it's one of the best, you know, parts of our game because it's a, it's one of the greatest honors, right? You have 82 games and, you know, the honor of practicing all week, working hard, and your coach giving you the responsibility to start the game, to represent your city, to represent your team. It, it's a small honor within all of the greatest honors of our sport, and that's obviously winning a Stanley Cup and winning trophies and doing all that stuff. So I wanted to come up with something that connected us all, and that is something that connected us all. Because regardless of whether you want to kneel, stand, put your hand in the air, hold hands, we all stand on the blue line to start the game. So that's why I came up with Blue Line Buddies, because I said, you know, what if the blue line stood for more than just respecting the people that have fought for our country? What if it stood for equality and, and, and togetherness and love and, and, and all of these things that we talk about today? But our program is not just about law enforcement. Uh, it's about leaders in our community. It's about first responders. It's about teachers. It could be uh, a coach. It could be a lot of people. So, you know, it coming to New Jersey now, possibly going to other teams after this season, um, that's how we would see the program moving forward. That's good stuff. Hey, PK, a couple more for you. Um, the NHL recently announced several committees to focus on diversity issues in sport. In the sport. Uh, you are co-chair of the Player Inclusion Committee, uh, which includes Anson Carter, Mika Zibanejad, Sarah Nurse, and others. For the listeners who might not know the difference, what is the contrast between this committee that you're on with the National Hockey League and an organization like the Hockey Diversity Alliance, for example? 
Well, I think first and foremost, everybody has to take the step forward and if they choose um, to, to have an impact the way that sits the best with them. Um, I don't think anybody can speak for myself and my experiences. I don't think anyone can speak for your experiences or any other player or athlete or person that wants to speak out. Most people speak from their own experiences. You know, um, I don't think that this is about that. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, us getting to where we want to is about me discussing my personal experiences per se, because those are just my personal experiences. Those experiences shouldn't have an impact on the greater point and the greater good of bringing people together and having better days ahead of us. But that being said, everybody has to take that step forward the way they feel, uh, uh, the way they see it. And I believe that my involvement in the player inclusion committee um, is still at very high level. I still want to have discussions and hear what plans and concrete plans and programs that we have in place moving forward, because we, we have to also understand this, that actions are very, very important. Um, so I'm very excited about the opportunity uh, to work with the NHL in doing that, but we need, you know, I think that having, there's always going to be multiple people fighting that fight. There's going to be multiple people that want to eradicate racism and everybody's going to have a different way, right? Like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King didn't always see eye to eye, but they had an impact in their own right. Um, and we can say that about a lot of different people. So I think that in the sport, we're all after the same thing. And that's about um, continuing to, to build our game, improve our game, make it inclusive uh, make it more welcoming, continuing to make it welcoming, and not just at the NHL level, but at the grassroots level as well. Um, you know, so there's, this is, there are, are a lot of moving parts in change and change coming. And, you know, there's, it's not just one specific thing. So I think that everybody has to figure out um, how they can do it the best way that they feel and then go about it that way. PK, talking about moving parts, you're at a point now where you're preparing for next season that could begin in December, maybe begins in January. A lot is uncertain. At this point, though, what is your appetite or maybe comfort level with a different format for next season, potentially playing in a bubble or a hybrid bubble? Like, how much does that, is that something that you would feel comfortable doing? Well, I'm not really sure what to think. Um, I've never had to do that before so you know for me as a veteran player in the league uh you know i guess you could say that i i'm not a veteran in understanding that stuff but um i know a lot of players that were in the bubble so i'm gonna I'm definitely closer to the season if that's the way things are gonna go i'll definitely i can always reach out to an andy green who i played with last year and kind of get the scoop on that and and what he did uh, what adjustments he felt he had to make or he did make while he was in that bubble. Um, but as of right now, it's still early. You know, we, we potentially could have 10 plus weeks until a possible training camp and um, more than that when it comes to the season. I don't really know. So until there's announcements made and I understand more, um, you know, then I'll take it uh, from there. Last one for me, PK. Uh we're talking to you right during NHL draft week. And uh, you, of course, were drafted second round, 43rd overall, 2007, uh, snugly between Eric Tangredi and Aaron Pelushi. Uh What do you remember most from that day? 
And what do you think is different about the NHL draft now versus when you participated in it? Huh. What do I remember about that day? Well, it was my second day um, at the draft. I had a beautiful tailor-made suit uh, <laughs> that I had made in Toronto. And um, I wasn't really thinking about going to the draft in the first place because I didn't even have to go to the combine. I wasn't in the 100. I think it was the top 100 or 150 ranked players. Yeah. Um, so I never had to go to the combine. Um, but I did have three teams that were interested in me in, in uh I believe it was Washington, Florida, and Pittsburgh um, at the time. And I remember uh, them saying that they wanted to interview me if I'd be willing to go to the draft. So we drove up to Columbus um, from Toronto. And uh, I remember on draft day, there was a chance that I could go to Pittsburgh at 20th overall or 21st, I believe. And if a player that, uh, they wanted wasn't available and that player happened to be available and Angelo Esposito and they ended up selecting him. So I felt from the first, <laughs> you know, any chance of me going in the first round was kind of slim by then. Um, and then I, I went back to the hotel, had to take my suit off, put the same suit back on and, and get back out there again for day two. And um, it was interesting because I remember around the 40th pick, the New York Rangers head scout came up to me and said, um, you know, we're going to take you at 46. And uh, I was pretty excited about it. Um, you know, I was like, wow, you know, New York. And then 43rd uh, Montreal had drafted me and they, they had my name stitched on the jersey. So I think they knew I'd be available at 43rd. And uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. So it was a special moment for me. Um, to work that hard and to have it. But all that was to me was just an extra boost of, you know, knowing that every time I step in the gym, um, you know, I'm being appreciated for the work mm -hmm. that I've been doing and that there was more work to come. And I just continued to work. And um, I still, I'm still working today. So <laughs> the work hasn't <laughs> stopped yet. <laughs> great, great stuff. I love it, PJ. Well, last thing for me, real quick. You said that it's been a long time since you've been on the ice. You know, we've all been stuck at home or, or outside of our routines the last couple months. What's something new that you've picked up, whether it's a hobby, a podcast you started listening to, a book or a show you've binged? Yeah, well, two things. Um, first of all, the podcast, yes. I started my own podcast, uh, Ugly Duck Podcast, um, which was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed doing it um, uh, because it gave me an opportunity to also feel a part of the playoffs, even though I wasn't playing, watching the games, talking about the games, commenting on it, um, you know, being able to, uh, to really see the game from a different view. You know, it's been a really long time since I've watched that much hockey on TV and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I think people enjoyed the podcast. So a lot of people were watching it. So I think that's always great when you start something new and people love it. Um, the second thing was, is I watched, I must've watched the last dance at least. <laughs> um, uh, and it's, it's addictive for a player like me because uh, I grew up idolizing people like Kobe Bryant and uh, Michael Jordan and athletes like this, um, not because they were great, but because of their mindset and their approach, 
And to watch that documentary, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, the only person upset about me watching it was Lindsay because she was just sick and tired of seeing me watch it so many times. <laughs> uh, yeah, she just wanted it to be done. Like she was like, uh, she's like, I can't watch it anymore. Like you can't, you can't watch it anymore. And I'm kind of like, so then I had to shift from like not watching it in the family room to like watching it in the garage when I was like working out, nobody was around. So, um, <laughs> But I, I, uh, I absolutely loved watching it and um, definitely was a boost for me. Um, just a breath of fresh air because I never really got to watch Michael Jordan play. But mm. I knew he was a killer and I just kind of wanted to see it. And to get that inside scoop was, was huge for me. Great stuff. PK, oh, by the way, available on ESPN+. Plus. Here, we'll plug that as well for The Last Dance. Uh, PK, <laughs> you're, you're the best. Everybody check out PK's stuff for Adidas. It's part of their Ready for Change series. You can find the doc on their social channels, on PK social channels. Dude, you're the best. Uh, best of luck. We'll, we'll circle back again when we start playing hockey again, man. Thanks for the time. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, guys. Our thanks to PK. Great story about the draft. Man, what could have been? PK Subban on the, on the Penguins? Yeah, well, he would be a wild by now. Right. <laughs> That's very true. All right, now it's time for a favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's the segment each week where we look at the foibles of the hockey media. Justin Abdelkader was bought out by the Detroit Red Wings um, because he is not good. Damian Cox, our old friend and a frequent... Uh, uh, appearer in this segment tweets now Abdul Kader is a player that could add something to the Leafs is he is he just blissfully unaware that Mike Babcock's no longer the coach <laughs> and that <laughs> and that broke down Red Wings don't necessarily have a place in Toronto anymore I don't know it just seemed dumb th- th- again but this is this is an important point that everybody should remember going forward look for the Tampa Bay Lightning they won with Barkley Goodrow and Blake Coleman brainworms that will be infecting mm. everybody's head. Uh, general managers, pundits, whoever. The kind of that player that, that bias. Oh, and, and and it's not only that, but it's also like you know, it's a combination of two brainworms. They've it's it's two two separate species. It's the we need to get bottom six grit that can also score, and then the other brainworm is. We need to get guys that got bought out and get them for cheap. And so in Cox's brain, the two worms commingled and twisted around, and that's how you end up with Justin Abelkader, even though he is the antithesis of what the Maple Leafs need. Now it's time to puck for puck headlines. Dateline next season. The NHL targets January 1st for a start, Emily. Uh, what, are, what are the odds you put on that actually happening? I actually put it on pretty decent um I, I i think you know now that we're in crunch time where like we have to start telling guys when you need to report to training camp when you need to be a certain place a lot of guys are back in europe or wherever um you know there, there's a reason they went and put it out there and put a press release saying january 1st um the question is what does january 1st look like is that a couple of hybrid cities is that a canadian division and a u.s division if the border remains closed which let's face it we're in October. It doesn't seem like that border is opening for essential business, not essential business anytime soon. 
Um, and, 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 you know, it does it involve some kind of bigger tournament or a regionalized schedule. So I don't know what it looks like, but I, I do think that we could get some NHL hockey in January. All 31 teams, Target Field, Winter Classic, the season starts, everybody's social distance. Yeah, it's outdoors. <laughs> it's beautiful. Dateline, CBJ. The Jackets trade Josh Anderson to the Canadiens for Max Domi. Anderson and Domi share an agent, and they were golfing together when the trade was made. That's pretty incredible. What? Okay, Domi said they were golfing together. Then Anderson goes on his media call with the Canadians. is like, oh, yeah, we FaceTime each other right when we found out. Who's lying? Hmm. Maybe they were at, maybe, maybe like Domi was going to get his ball. Like maybe somebody mm. hit the, they, like they were on different parts of the course. Regardless. I have uh, a lot of questions. Domi declined comment on his relationship with Claude Julian. Domi's an interesting cat. Like, I think that if he can shore up his defensive game, he's a has the potential to be a real good player. I'm interested to see what he does in that Blue Jackets um, structure. I think there's a chance that they got the better player here, even though I know there's a lot of love for Josh Anderson as a as a big scoring winger. There is. And, you know, when he declined to comment on his relationship with Claude Julian, it was clear it was deteriorating by the way that it was handled in the playoffs when he was demoted to the fourth line. His Mm -hmm. ice time was shaved. He wants to play center. He believes that he is an NHL center. They didn't view him as such. The Columbus Blue Jackets really could use some centers and they could use some scoring help. So I love I love the move for them. And I'd love to see what he looks like. And you're right. A John Tortorella offense. Yeah. Check, check it away. Hope he has a better relationship with that coach because that's scary not to. Dateline Dillon's. Not talking Bob Dillon, not talking Dylan McKay from 90210, talking Brendan Dillon, four year deal with the Capitals, and Dylan DeMello, I think also, did he go four years with Winnipeg or three? I forget which one it's it is. 3.9, I want to say. Prob- probably should have, probably should have uh, written that down. But two Dillons, both defensive defense and both get deals. Um, and I th- I agree with, with our friend Arpan Basu from The Athletic. It's weird to praise Mark Bergevin, you know, but I'm going to do it. Getting ahead of the curve and, and trading for Joel Edmondson, who's a very sort of similar player to these guys, was real smart. And trading for Jake Allen before the crush of goalie stuff on the market was also really smart. He did some good business, man. You look at these 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 signings. You say to yourself, you needed to get ahead of the curve, and I think that he was one of the few GMs that did. So good on him. Well, well dressed. I, we'll just too. end on a compliment to Bergevin. We'll just okay. Nothing else to say. Real quick, Dateline the teens. A recent survey of Gen Z, Emily, which I don't believe either of us in are in. Mm-hmm. I'm a hardcore millennial through and through. <laughs> Generation X. Uh. The top five restaurants for Gen Z. Number five, Dunkin' Donuts. Thanks, Charlie D'Amelio. Number four, McDonald's. Somehow still. Number three, Chipotle. Number two, Starbucks. Number one, Chick-fil-A. Would you have guessed Chick-fil-A is, was the favorite restaurant for Gen Z? I probably would have guessed Starbucks or Chipotle based on based on the... Um, the the buying habits of of my 10 year old daughter i would say starbucks without question but she's also a chipotle nerd chick-fil-a though number one i think this study was conducted by the university of alabama or something i've got some (laughs) questions about biases 
Chick-fil-A, not number one in New York City. Let's let's be honest. The teens aren't to going be to Chick-fil-A. Fair, though, there's two in Chicago, and like the line is always long. It's a coveted experience. And I do think there's something about it, the fact they're only open six days a week, mm-hmm. that gives that, that little bit of um, exclusivity uh, and- that Gen Z craves. Clearly, we underestimate the appeal of waffle fries to Gen Z. That's that's the lesson mm. here. Anyway, and sauces, options, and so, oh, options well, of sauces. Uh, ma'am, that is not a Gen Z uh, appeal. That is a Greg Wyshynski appeal. Uh, everything in my life is merely a delivery system for condiments. They also okay. Maybe if I just want to pump up uh, Chick Fil A a little more. Have you tried their mac and cheese? <laughs> Their well, their their primary sauce is one of the best condiments in fast food. But that listen, that's another Correct. podcast. All right, thanks to John Cooper, thanks to PK Suban, thanks to all of you for supporting supporting uh, the so called podcast and our so called journalism. Uh, you can read our stuff at ESPN.com. We've got full coverage of the draft, the trades, the free agency this Friday. We're going to do all the stuff there. We got some videos cooking for you as well. All good stuff. Uh, what about you, Emily? Yeah, no, that's what we've got. And we so appreciate everyone who has checked out our live dra- draft tracker uh, throughout the week. That is a tongue twister if you ever want to hear one. Our shout out to Chris <laughs> Peters, who's done an incredible job. And uh, you for following along. So read, rate, subscribe, unsubscribe, and subscribe again. I've heard that's a useful tool. Mm-hmm. And bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.